We're picking up from last week as we're making our way through the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And we've taken uh, three churches to begin with, and we're talking about what do they teach us about what we as Christians and we as the church need to give up in order to be ready to meet Jesus. Uh, Last week, we took a look at the church of Ephesus, and the church of Ephesus was very smart. They were able to identify correctly everything that was happening in life, and yet it wasn't accompanied by love. And that resulted in a sort of, look how wrong you are, instead of, look what God has for you. They needed to give up being right instead of having love. And then uh, we spoke as well of the church in Thyatira. And the church in Thyatira was, their big problem is they looked around and they said, well, in order to belong here in this place, there are certain things we need to do, and they don't really work well with our faith, but we're going we're gonna to do those things. We're going to make compromises with the way the world lives and what the world does in order to be Christians in this place. Because actually, the consequences were a big deal for them. If they uh, did give up the worship of the gods of the people around them, they would have been economically destitute. They would have been socially ostracized. And they said, surely that's not what God wants for our lives. And I think Jesus responds, of course, that's not what God wants for your life, that you would be isolated with no economic opportunity. But God actually wants more for you than the friends that you have now, and then the economic opportunity that you have now. He wants to offer you all the world in Jesus Christ, and you can't belong to Jesus Christ and belong to these other gods at the same time. You have to give up your compromise. Uh, Of course, that doesn't mean never compromise. Let's just be clear on that but you have to give up these certain compromises that you're making. And now to the church in Laodicea. If you have never heard of any of the seven churches of Revelation, or you're not familiar with any of the letters and messages, you're probably familiar with this one, if you've been in church very often. If you're not familiar with it, that's okay. You can still be here. That's fine. But I think for most of us, this is something that's familiar somehow or other. And it's familiar because of this really powerful imagery. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. It's a compelling picture, but it doesn't mean exactly, I think, what we most often think. I'm going to come back to that. But first, let's talk, let's talk a bit about Jesus. You can never do badly in church by talking about Jesus. Jesus talks about this is who I am. In every one of the letters to the churches, he gives a description of himself, usually from some things we found in chapter 1. And here to the church in Laodicea, he says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, I, uh, the NIV has made a translation decision here. It says the ruler of God's creation. They're translating a Greek word, arche which can mean either beginning or ruler. Now, ruler is an easy translation, right? We're like, of course, Jesus is the ruler of God's creation. That's what he's supposed to be. You know, case closed. But what if it said that he is the beginning of God's creation? That sounds strange, doesn't it? But I think that's actually the better translation here. Let me tell you why. First of all, when we say that Jesus is the beginning of God's creation, we don't mean that he is the first thing God created period. 
Right? Like if you go back to Genesis and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, what was the first thing he made? Do you remember? Let there be light. We're not saying, well, Jesus was somehow that light. We're not saying, well, Moses forgot. You know, actually, the first thing he made was Jesus. And this is significant because back, uh, back in Jesus' day, back in the day of the early church, people were really arguing about this. Is Jesus created by God or is he God? Is he, is he created or uncreated? There are lots of questions, lots of arguing over this. This was probably the most important argument they had in the first three or four centuries of the early Christian church. And all, you know, the Council of Nicaea, in the fourth century, was called pretty much to settle this or at least a related question. Is Jesus actually God or is he just kind of like God? Is he made by the Father or is he himself unmade? And if you read the Nicene Creed, it says that he is begotten, not made which gets us into some more complicated Trinitarian theology. But let me just leave it at this and say the church has always said Jesus, the Son of God, and the person of the Son of God in his divinity is uncreated and unmade. But when John says that Jesus is the beginning of God's creation, he wants us to go back, first of all, to verse 5 in chapter 1. You remember the whole description of Jesus. What, what, is it, what does it say here to Laodicea? It's, he is the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. That sounds similar, doesn't it? the faithful witness. He has told us about the Father. This is John 1 stuff. John has taught this before, where he says, no one has seen God at any time in John chapter 1. But the only God who lives in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus is the faithful, the one who gives the faithful witness about God. And then what does it say next in chapter 1, verse 5? He's the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead. See, when it says Jesus is the beginning of God's creation, he doesn't mean the beginning of God's original creation. He means the beginning of God's brand spanking new creation. Let me explain this in this way. Uh, the early church, how many days are in a week, by the way? Seven, easy question. I just wanted to give you a softball. Seven days in the week. But the people in the early church often talked about the eighth day. They didn't say eight days or the eighth of the days. They said the eighth day. All the time they talked about this. Cassiodorus, a fourth century Christian leader, says, as has already been mentioned, he's talking, uh, giving commentary on the Psalms. And he says, as has already been mentioned in our explanation of Psalm 6, eighth refers to our eternal rest, since there is no eighth day in this world. After the seventh day, the week begins again with the first day, right? Not the eighth. But in the seven-day weeks of this world, the number is plural, but the eighth day is singular because it is not followed by another day. It is our eternal rest, Cassiodorus says. Augustine, a much more famous fourth-century Christian, said, so it was perfectly reasonable that it should have been on the first, which is also the eighth day, Sunday, 
that our Lord chose to give us an example in his own flesh of bodily resurrection. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Let me break it down for you right here. The eighth day is the day of new creation, and it is already dawned in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus means when he says, I am the beginning of God's creation. He's not speaking about his divinity there, but rather his new humanity that he has by virtue of the resurrection. Jesus is the one in whom the new creation comes. Jesus is the eighth day. And in him, we begin to live the eighth day. And this is hugely significant to helping us understand what's happening in the Laodicean church. Jesus doesn't just say, here's a few arbitrary things you ought to know about me before I correct you. He says, here is the thing you need to know so that you will mend your ways. I am the eighth day. I am the new creation. Why? Why does the church in Laodicea need to hear this? Well, it's because Jesus goes on to say to them what we already heard. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize the truth. He is the faithful and true witness. He's about to tell you what you are really like, Church of Laodicea. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, which is a way no one in the ancient world would ever have described the people of Laodicea. They would have described them as rich, they would have described them as well equipped, having everything that they needed. I'll get back to that in a minute and tell you exactly why. But let me, let me go back to the hot and cold stuff. See, Laodicea is saying, we are probably God's best servants because we are rich. We don't need anything. You know, we are influential. We can make a difference in this world. As a matter of fact, uh, back in AD 60, there was an enormous earthquake in Laodicea. It destroyed everything. Now, the ancient world's not like our world. You know, when something happens, they get Sarah McLaughlin to play a song and, you know, put it on the TV, probably with really sad animals or something like that. And they say, give to the Red Cross. You know, give to these people who will go in and fix this sort of stuff. Well, Sarah McLaughlin was not alive in the first century to do that. But more importantly, there weren't social services. There weren't charities that were at work doing these sorts of things. So when a disaster hit, you were on your own. But Laodicea, the, the news of their disaster was so bad, was so terrible, that all the way out in Rome, Laodicea in Turkey, Rome in Italy, all the way out in Rome, they said, let us send you some money to help you rebuild your city. And do you know what the people in Laodicea said? We got it. We don't need your help. Laodicea was an enormously wealthy city. They had the money to solve their problems on their own. That's exactly what they did. And you know how they talked about themselves from 8060 onward? We're the people who don't need anybody's help. We've got everything that we need right here. It's like, uh, I think pretty, you know, the New Orleans Saints coined this when they won the Super Bowl. They said, we all we got, we all we need. 
Right now, all the football teams everywhere say it like it's brand new and original. All we got. That's, and that's what, that's what the Laodiceans said about themselves. We're all we've got, but we're all that we need. You think that you are rich and acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But here's the truth about you. You're neither cold nor hot. And when we hear that, what we think is, uh, well, they're not on fire for the Lord, right? And they're also not utterly opposed to him. Is that what cold means? Right? And then God goes on and he says, I wish you were one or the other. And you're like, wait, that can't be right. He wishes that they were either totally on fire for him or utterly opposed. And sometimes we, we try and figure out how that could be true, right? We say, well, it must be that like, we're, we're more ready to hear the gospel if we're utterly opposed to God. Does that make any sense to anyone out there? Have you ever met somebody who's utterly opposed to something? When you start talking to them and trying to convince them otherwise, what do they do? Shut your face! I know better. I don't need any of that. Right? People utterly opposed, they're not more open to something. God is not saying, I wish that you were either on fire for me or totally opposed, cold or hot. What he is saying is, I wish you were like your city, Herapolis, or I wish you were like your, your fellow city, Colossae, because Herapolis was famous for its hot springs. It, what, why do people go to hot springs? Doctors send people there, right? At least in the ancient world. I don't know if they still do. No doctors ever told me to go to a hot spring. But when I had back problems, they did tell me find a hot tub or something like that. Right? Put heat on it. I wish you were like Herapolis. I wish you were like the waters of Herapolis because you'd be good for healing. Or Colossae. I've been actually both to Herapolis and Colossae. I've stood in the hot springs at Herapolis. They're famous white hills there from the minerals from the hot spring water flowing down over it. We stayed in a hotel built on one of the hot springs in Herapolis, and we swam in the water, and it felt good. We went to Colossae, and Colossae has actually never been excavated. I don't know if you know this, but sometimes you can tell where an ancient city is because there's a big hill. It's called a tell. If you ever go to the Holy Land or to uh, to ancient Roman areas, you might see these sort of weird mounds everywhere. Those are tells where ruins are buried. Colossae's never been excavated. There's just a hill. And you know what's running right by the hill? is a cold stream. And when do we usually go swimming? When it's hot. I don't know. Have you ever been swimming in Lake Kauia? Maybe in August? Is that refreshing at all? You jump in, you're like, oh my gosh, now I'm hotter. It's incredible how that water just sitting there, you know, with little cold water coming, it just warms up. And you jump in and you feel even worse because it's not cold and refreshing. But what happens if you go a few miles up the river and it's cool and you jump in you say, oh, this feels so good. When I was a kid, this is actually the example I meant to give. When I was a kid, my folks lived on a lake, which meant I lived on a lake, of course, and we had a hot tub up at the house. And so what we would do is uh, during the winter, we would go and we'd run and we'd jump into the lake, right? We'd, ah, it's so cold! <laughs> you know, it's like 100 feet from the house to the lake. So we jump in, oh, it's so cold! And we'd run back up, right? Because it's like 40 degrees outside and it's probably raining too. We didn't even need to jump in the lake. We could have just been cold standing out in the rain. But we ran into the hot tub. We got to go, oh, that feels so good. Actually, it burned at first. But then it, you're like, oh, this feels really nice. And then what would we do? 
Right? We get back up because we're kids and we're dumb. And if you're a kid here today, I'm really sorry. But we'd run down to the lake and we'd jump in. And, oh, it's so cold. And it was a blast, right? The difference between cold and hot. Cold is good and hot is good. And you know what's not good is lukewarm. As a matter of fact, do you know where the water in Laodicea came from? It came from Herapolis. It was the hot spring water after it had lost all of its heat. You ever been to a hot spring? Does it smell good at a hot spring? It smells awful. It's sulfurous and all these gases from under the earth from lava. And, and, and this is the water the people in Laodicea were drinking. You can see ancient pipes. I have a picture. I should have put it up. You can see ancient pipes in Laodicea. And you know, they were this big, and now they're this big because they're full of awful-tasting minerals. And God is saying to the people in Laodicea something they would absolutely understand and probably be really offended by. You taste as bad as your water, and I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Because you think, you think you have it all. You think you can do it on your own. And you can't. See, the the people in Laodicea We're trying to be Christians as seven days sort of people. They were old creation sorts of people. And God's saying, that doesn't do any good for anybody. Everyone is a seven days sort of people, but I called you to be either cold and refreshing like the waters of Colossae or healing like the waters of Herapolis. And the only way you can be that is if you are an eighth day person. They're living out of their flesh and not out of the resurrection. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. But really, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And how often we are the same. Remember, God didn't leave a scripture so he could look and say, man, those people were dummies. But because he knew our hearts and our minds are tempted to be the same way. We are so tempted to be Christians, not by looking anything like Jesus, but by just being the smartest people in the room, by accumulating the most influence or the most wealth, by coming up with new strategies. Folks, we've been doing new strategies for the entirety of human existence, and that's why we keep coming up with new strategies. None of them have worked so far. They work, maybe they work for a time, but there is nothing permanent about the way this world is. What do people like to say? Change is the only thing that never changes, right? Every day, we will need to change. That's the only constant in this world that we live in, because none of it, none of it works. No seven-day living will ever work. Not on the long run. Not to really repair our world. What we need is not what we rely on. Is not that our country has the most powerful military or the biggest economy or the most influence or the least influence or this policy or that policy. What we need is the king who comes humbly into Jerusalem riding on a donkey who shows us the way to new life. Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, here's what you need to do. 
you need to buy gold refined by fire from me. You're trusting in your wealth, but you need to trust in mine. And folks, Jesus' wealth, it's not really in dollars and cents, is it? It's not that, I mean, Peter at one point, he says, uh, someone comes up to Peter and he says, hey, Jesus pays the temple tax, right? Because good Jews pay the temple tax. Peter says, of course Jesus pays the temple tax. And then he goes and he finds Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, did you pay the temple tax this year? And Jesus says, hey, I own the temple. I'm what the temple's all about. I don't need to pay the temple tax. But so we don't offend anybody, go fishing. You're going to throw out your line, pull in a fish, and there will be a coin in its mouth, enough to pay the temple tax for both you and for me. See, Jesus' wealth isn't contained in the coins, is it? But Jesus doesn't lack the coins either. He knows where we've lost them all. And we've probably lost more than we have, some way or other. California, every state has their whole unclaimed property division where things that people have forgotten that they have, eventually, you know, the bank is required to send them to the state and the state holds it in trust for everybody. I don't know if we need scare quotes around that or not, but whatever. And you can call them up and you can find your lost property. Jesus knows where all the lost property is. He may not have all the coins, but he can provide them no matter what. But that's not Jesus' true source of wealth. This is gold refined by fire. Jesus says, I have lived the life that you need, and my life is effective for you. When the Father looks at you, he sees my righteousness and not yours because you belong to me by faith. Why don't you rely on that instead of the fact that you can rebuild your stinking city? with its horrible water out of your own pockets. He says, we need, you need to buy from me, you church of Laodicea, white garments. It was hard to make white garments in the ancient world. Uh, they didn't have the chemicals and things that we have access to. But you know what Laodicea, they were famous for rebuilding their city. You know something else they were famous for was their black wool. World famous. If anyone was well-dressed, it was the Laodiceans. And Jesus says, your clothes stink. They will never cover you in glory in the way that I can. You're trusting in your achievements and your accomplishments, but mine are so much better. Would you buy white clothes from me? And then Jesus says, you need, you are blind, Jesus had criticized them for. And he says, buy salve for your eyes from me. You know, the third great thing that Laodicea was famous for, you should be able to guess it by now, eye medicine. Jesus says, you think you fixed it so you can make people see, but you can't see the way I can. You think you are rich. You think you are well-dressed. You think you are influential and, and you're solving all the world's problems and you are pitiable and poor and blind and naked. You can't see, but I can make you see. I can give you spiritual sight. How hard would this be for the people of Laodicea to hear? This is a wealthy, famous, respected city. And the people in the church had pride in these things as well. They saw themselves in the same sorts of way. And Jesus says, you need me to give you the true sight that you 
desperately, desperately need me. You need to be eighth-day people, not seven-day sorts of people. And it matters. See, seven days thinking keeps us from spiritual victory. Yesterday, uh, someone asked me, you know who you are, why we weren't inviting our local school more often to our activities, especially our kid-friendly activities. And there are a lot of reasons, I think. But if I'm honest, I think one of the biggest is we're afraid of what would happen if hundreds or even tens of children showed up. Look around. How many people do you think are here today? 50, 60? What if 200 kids showed up to our church? I mean, I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but what if it did? And are you afraid of that? Because I am. But that's seven days thinking. Did you notice? Do I have enough money? Do I have enough resources? Do we have enough tables? Do we have enough chairs? Where will we get them if all this happens? Will this take up all my time and all my effort from now on? Will it just be running around serving children? That's not what I imagined myself growing up to do, even though it's like Jesus was all, the kingdom of heaven is, you know, you have to be like a child to get into it. I'm like, well, but I want to be like an adult, Jesus, and I want to do it with adults. Anyone else out there feel like that? You don't have to raise your hand this morning. This can just be my confession. But that's seven days thinking. My resources are limited, and so I can't do it. What's eighth day thinking? Well, Jesus died, and then he rose from the dead. I'm pretty sure he can handle that. I'm pretty sure he can deal with 200 kids or 2,000 kids or 20,000 kids. I'm pretty sure he could deal with whether or not I immediately like children all of the time. I'm pretty sure that Jesus will provide whatever resource we need, maybe even from those very people who might visit our church for the first time. But will we ever find it out? Will we ever know if that's true if we continue to live as seven days people? Seven days thinking keeps us from our greatest spiritual victories. It makes us satisfied with just tiny little bits of growth, or maybe even none at all. Well, we tried. There's a great uh, GIF. I don't know if you know what a GIF is, but you know, if you're texting people on your phone, you can insert a GIF, and it's a, a moving picture. It's not quite a video, but and people like to make like really funny GIFs or something like that. And I don't, I don't know if you remember, there, there was a, 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 an old NBC marketing campaign, a commercial would be the shooting star, and it would say, the more you know. It's like really dorky and inspirational. And then uh, uh, someone changed this to, to be a GIF, and it says, an attempt was made. And that's seven days Christianity. Well, we tried. Eighth-day Christianity is, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how this is possible. I don't know how it'll work, but if God has given us the vision, he will give us. If God has given us the school, he will give us the resources. If God has given us the community, he will give us the resources. If God has given us, as you're going to hear from Cal in a few minutes, a building that needs a lot of tender, loving care... He will give us the resources if this is where he wants us to do the ministry. That's eighth-day Christianity. But seven-day thinking doesn't just keep us from our greatest victories that only come in Christ. Seven-day thinking never delivers on our biggest needs. Never delivers 
on our biggest needs. Because seven days thinking never thinks farther ahead than about seven days, right? That's a metaphor. You might think a few years or something. But it never thinks to eternity. Because that's an eighth-day thing. Seven-day thinking is only about, well, am I going to have enough food today? Seven-day thinking is about, am I going to have enough money for retirement? These aren't bad questions. But they're all avoiding the big question, aren't they? Something terrible is wrong with this world. Something is broken here. And part of that means, I'm going to die. Some of us have encountered things in the last few years where we said, I could die tomorrow. Some of us, usually the younger, more foolish ones of us, are thinking, I'll probably live forever. But folks, no one does except for Jesus. The eighth day man. See, seven day thinking rearranges the furniture on the Titanic. We're all going to die, but at least there'll be pretty music before we go. At least we can have a nice meal before it ends. At least we can accumulate some things, have some experiences. Folks, that's not the problem. The problem is it all comes to a crashing end. Has there ever been anyone in your life that when they died, you thought, well, that's over now and, and that's fine? I know sometimes we try and convince ourselves, right? Someone, they've got terrible dementia, and we say, oh, death was such a release. But what do we really think about that? I lost this person a long time ago, and I've been mourning it ever since. Seven-day thinking says, my real problems are, you know, my 401k balance. My real problems are, how do I make payroll this week? Eighth-day thinking says, my real problem is that it all comes to a crashing end, and there is no escape in a seven-day world. So what do we do? How do we change our thinking from seven days to eighth day? This is a wonderful passage. Here in the letter to the church at Laodicea. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Jesus doesn't point out our flaws for fun or because he's good at it. Because he loves us, and he wants something better for us. So be earnest and repent. That's number one. Just repent, Jesus. I was wrong, and with your help, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I don't want to be a seven-day person anymore. I want to be an eighth-day person. But secondly, and at least as importantly, here I am, Jesus says. Here I am. I stand at the door. And I knock. If anyone. Folks, are you an anyone? Anyone. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That's a picture of relationship and friendship, isn't it? That's why Jesus spent so much time eating with people. If you go and read the Gospels, Jesus ate a lot. But it was always with somebody, inviting them into friendship and family. And Jesus says, if anyone, if you, 
or me. If anyone opens, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat. Who's the heavy lifter in that one? What's Jesus saying? He, he didn't, he says, you've got your lives. You're in the midst of them, right? You, you, you're setting the table for your next meal. While you are doing that, I am knocking and I'll come in. You just open the door. You know how we uh, sometimes say, if you want to become a Christian, you ask Jesus into your heart. You heard that before? Pray the sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. You know, the Bible doesn't say to do that anywhere. It comes from this passage here. If anyone hears me, my voice, hears me knocking and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with them. That's what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus takes care of the rest. Jesus makes us eighth-day people. There's no, no uh, 12 steps or something like that. Okay, so first, do this. And second, do that. No, fellowship with Jesus. Fellowship with Jesus. I'm going to end with this. How can we seek Jesus this week? How can we open the door to him? This is participatory, so I need your help. How can we do that? It's also not rocket science. There's lots of good answers, so don't be afraid. Yeah, just pray. What would it look like to pray so as to open the door to Jesus when you knock? Sometimes we just read lists, right? God, help with this, help with that, help with my forgetting anything. What if we just started to pray, Jesus, here I am. Would you eat with me today? Would you come in? What else? What else can we do? Read the Bible. Yeah, read the Bible. Those are Jesus' words. I, I, anyone here have a red-letter Bible? Now, yeah. <laughs> Cal and I had a conversation about this this week. You don't have to throw away your red-letter Bibles, but let me ask you something. Are there any words in the Bible that are not Jesus' words? No. Be, just be careful with your red-letter Bibles, lest you start thinking those are the important ones and the rest of them don't matter. Read your Bible. Those are Jesus' words. Isn't that a way of saying, come in? You can even eat while you read your Bible. I encourage you to do it. There you go. What else? What are some other ways to open the door to Jesus this week? Do you ever know the right thing to do, but you're afraid of doing it? Do it. Isn't that a way of opening the door to Jesus? Lord, in my seven days economy, this doesn't make sense, but I know this is what you've asked. I'm going to open the door and invite you in to this thing where I so badly don't want to say yes, but know that is your Obey. What else? Another one or two. Be still. Be still. And listen. Just listen. I love that. Yeah. He's everywhere all the time. He said he's going to put his Holy Spirit into us. John 14 to 17. If you read the whole thing. And Jesus said, it's good that I'm going away because then the Holy Spirit will come and the Holy Spirit will be an even better helper to you because he will be inside where I'm outside. Just be still, Holy Spirit. What are you doing today? You know, in my spiritual life lately, 
I've started, uh, you know, every day I spend some, I set aside some time just to spend with the Lord. And I have started that time over the last two or three months with just silence. And I, I pull out my phone. I really need to turn the notifications off because it's distracting. But I, I set a timer. And I started with two minutes. And I said, I'm just going to be with Jesus for two minutes. I don't have to say anything. I don't have to do anything. I'm, and I start by saying, because you know, I start by inviting him. Lord, be here in this moment. And you know what happened is I've been increasing that time every week because it is sweet. One more. You guys have the choice. It's your fault if the sermon's long today because this is, you know, your participation. So. I see someone shaking their heads. God bless you. <laughs> Baptism. Yeah. Baptism is a way, it's one of the most important ways we say yes to Jesus and we invite him in. In baptism, we are making a declaration. This is the less important thing that we're doing, believe it or not. But we are making a declaration, I belong to Jesus. I have invited him in, and I want you all to know that. Partly I want you to know it because it's good news, and I'm excited to share it with you. Partly I want you to know that because you can hold me accountable to that relationship the rest of my life. You know, when we get married, and baptism is kind of like marriage in a lot of ways, we make promises, right? And you always have, when you sign the marriage license, there's a space for the officiant, and there's a space for someone else. Who's that? A witness. Why do you need a witness to those promises that you made? John, I married you and your wife. Why do you need a witness to the promise that you made? Uh, so that they help you stay accountable. That's right. That's exactly what I told John and his wedding party before they got married. You are here not just to look pretty, not just to look good, not just to make the pictures nice. You are here to witness the promises that these two are making and to hold them accountable to them as long as they both live. And the same thing is happening in our baptism. Now, the good news is, remember what we said? When, when Jesus, he's already at the door, he's knocking, you let him in, and then Jesus takes care of the rest. And that's true of baptism as well. When we get baptized, we are trusting it's not just something, here's what I'm doing, but that God is then grabbing on to us in the way that we need to live as his people day in and day out. Not in a way we need to be saved, because that's just faith but in a way that will change and transform us through the work of the Holy Spirit to seal us to forever and ever. Go do those things this week. Don't be allowed to see him. God bless him. <laughs> we don't want to be seven-day people. We want to live on the eighth.